you have a Bible, go ahead and take it and turn to the book of 1 Timothy. So the New Testament near the back, 1 Timothy chapter 4, and we will get there eventually, I promise. Um, the steady diet of preaching at our church is what we would call expositional or uh, exegetical or expository preaching. That simply means that on a Sunday morning we will take a specific passage, look at it in context, try to understand its meaning for the original audience that the author was writing to, and then try to see how that applies to us here in 2015. And the best way that I know how to do that is to go through books of the Bible. And so we did that with Luke just recently. We walked through the book of the Bible um, and let God lead us in that. And I believe that is good. It's what I'm most comfortable with. I think it keeps us centered in the Word. Uh, there's other times, though, I think it's good to take a step back and to consider a topic or an issue or a question or even just a phrase within Scripture and try to understand what it means or what that topic is about or or try to, to, to take a, a passage and see where does that thought where is that found in, in all of Scripture? Uh, to see the unity of Scripture about a certain topic, or maybe to see the tensions about a topic um, within Scripture. This is the work of what people would call systematic theology. So they take a, a topic like the deity of Jesus, or um, the character of God, or, or the afterlife, and say, what does all of Scripture have to say about this specific thing? Or, or we'll take a phrase in Scripture and say, how does this fit within the wider context of, of all that the Bible teaches. We don't do that often, but I do think it's healthy for us to do that. And so that's kind of what I, I want us to do this morning with a, a certain topic, probably not covered in most systematic theologies directly, or, uh, but, but namely it's this thought of how do, do we as Christians interact with the world in which we live? How, how do we rightly rejoice in the physical things that God has given us? How do we live as physical spiritual beings in a world, uh, in, in, in this world that God has made? Is there a divide between the physical and the spiritual that can't be crossed? It's, how do we deal with this, what people would call the, the, the secular and the sacred? How do we bring these things together? Um, but as I pray, more than just dispensing knowledge to you, I want to spark a, a conversation I want us to, to look at God's Word, to process it, and then try to apply it to our lives. You're going to quickly realize that I don't have this all figured out. Uh, and there's a temptation within me as a pastor to say, well, that means I shouldn't preach about it, because until I got it figured out, I'm not going to say anything. But I, I don't think that's, that's right, because I think um, I, I value each of you, and I value the, the, the truth that the Spirit of God resides in all people who are true believers. And, and we need to wrestle with things um, together. And so I do want to, to, to spark this conversation. I've had this conversation on this topic with some of you recently and with others, and it's been so helpful and encouraging and challenging and, and stretching and applicable. And so I kind of want to just open the conversation up to us all. I also want to spark this conversation because as we think about what we're going to call the stuff of earth and the glory of God, that'll be our three-week series, as we think about that, the application of these things is really going to be fairly different for us all. Um, in many ways, I think the reason we don't know how to interact with the world is because we are naturally legalists. We like to create laws and lists of things to do. The problem is that we are called to be led by the Spirit in the freedom of the Spirit. Laws and lists and judging others and the way that they act 
is easy. But embracing God's leading in our lives and, and seeing his application of principles in specific people's lives, that's it's hard. Um, let me kind of give you the insight into where my mind has been building this sort of uh, series, the strands of thought. Maybe you don't want to go in my mind, but let's try for a little bit. Uh, one stems from just thinking we're, we're in this physical world, right? We have physical bodies and so much of, of what our life is is tangible. Um, as Christians, we often, when we think about spirituality, we are preoccupied with the unseen world, with the, the spirit, but yet we live in a physical, material, tangible world. Our days are made up with, with sights and smells and tastes and touches and sounds, right? That's, that's what we live in. Particularly this time of year, that's another thing that's kind of in the back of my head. This wonderful time of, of year, the holidays approaching with Thanksgiving and, and Christmas. These are two holidays that are so bound up in the physical, aren't they? In good food and beautiful lights, the, the joy of family and the giving of gifts and playing football and watching movies and a, and a host of other things. So as Christians, how are we to rightly enjoy these things? Can we rightly enjoy these things? Is God glorified in your Thanksgiving turkey eating and your Christmas traditions? That's the question, kind of questions I want to ask. And part of this came out of my, my kids in school. They're studying through some of the Jewish holidays, the feasts and the festivals. And as we were learning about them, I saw how in God's word and, and, and in the, the, the overflow of that, how the Jewish people tied together so well the physical and the spiritual in their celebration of who God is and, and the things that he had done. So there was purpose and thought bound up in, in the way that you broke bread or you drank wine or the way that you prayed or the way that you lit candles. There's some symbolism tied to all these physical things. They weren't frivolous, but they weren't just purely spiritual. There was a recognition of the blessings of earth and, and a tying together of, of that, that God is the giver of all of these good gifts. Now, part of this probably is just the way I process the world, so you, you'll have to bear with me on that, because I just maybe overthink things a little bit. Um, how do I filter the, the blessings of what I've grown up in and thought about how to be spiritual? How do I deal with that and some new thoughts? How do I apply things like the, the call that many of us have heard to radical Christian living that sacrifices all for the furtherance of the gospel? How do we mesh that with this longing in my heart sometimes? Just I want to go sit around a campfire and enjoy s'mores with my kids. Is, can I do both of those things? How do I glorify God in my body, whether by life or by death or by watching a movie? I want to answer those questions. How do we deal with that? So this could just be me, okay? Maybe I haven't laid a good enough groundwork, but this is where we're at for now. Um, maybe you say this isn't a struggle. I don't know what you're wrestling with. Some of you know right where I'm coming from. You kind of maybe deal with this a little bit. But I think it's good for us to, to find this tension between the sacred, sacred and the secular and to, to try to, to deal with it. How do we live as aliens and strangers in this world, but image bearers that reflect him in this world? How do we sing, this is my father's world, and all creatures of our God and King, and then sing, all I have is Christ? Or, maybe you've heard this one, it's an old, not an older, but it's, we wouldn't sing it on a Sunday morning, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through, have you heard that one? Or even as, as Caesar saying, how do we see that, People need the Lord, and we should give our lives to see that happen. How, 
what do we do with this? Do we love this world too much? Are we finding too much joy in the world? Maybe that's one spot you're at. Or maybe you're not finding enough joy in God and the things that he's given. Do we feel this tension? I don't know. I'm trying to raise it. Because there's this world that we live in and it's wonderful. And it's it's joy inducing. There's so many good things. I mean, I love the colors of fall and the the beauty of winter and the smell of spring and the, the heat of summer. I love my family, my wife, my children. I like to watch football. I like playing football. I mean, CJ, I'll tell you, there's something amazing about running full speed and catching a spiral that is just, it's thrilling, isn't it? Maybe there's something else for Ken that would be stopping a goal or, you know. Uh, I, I'm, I'm excited about Thanksgiving. Is, is that unspiritual of me? I, I want to go eat stuffing and turkey and pumpkin pie and leftovers. I like good movies. I love music. Um, I sat at Sunergas coffee shop here in town writing the sermon, drinking some coffee, and the Nord's delivery truck drove by, Nord's Bakery, and it said on the side, life is sweet, eat it up. And I thought, yeah, right on. But then, you know, aren't truly spiritual people above such things? I mean, aren't, you know, monks and monastics, they love God, they glorify God more than me because they don't do any of that stuff. Should I watch a movie for two hours or should I pray for two hours and read scripture? Should I eat Christmas cookies or should I send money to people that are in need? Should I eat a donut? Should that really make me happy? This is my brain. What do we do with all this? How do we bring all this stuff together, you know? So here's the plan. This morning, I just want to sort of raise that tension, which I hope I'm I'm doing, and then concentrate on a truth from 1 Timothy 4, specifically that everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected. So I'll I'll summarize that in in a phrase in a second. But we'll just call this message the call to enjoyment. Um, And here's our big idea. We are called to enjoy all of God's good gifts for his glory. We are called to enjoy all of God's good gifts for his glory. And we're just going to focus in on that. So this is going to be no caveats, no cautions. That's really scary for me because we need some of that. But that's next week, okay? I don't want to, to blunt the beauty of just this call to enjoying all that God has made. But if you think I'm opening the door to abuses, we'll, number one, we'll deal with those next week, I promise. But number two, I think I'm okay with that. Because I think about Paul. Remember, Paul preaches the gospel, and it's a gospel of grace, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And what does everyone say? Paul, you're opening the door for people to abuse that. They're just going to sin so that grace can abound. Paul's gospel was so grace-centered that people could abuse it. And I think that sometimes we have to, to proclaim the truth of God's word clearly and say, you know what, that could be really abused. And we deal with the tensions, but at the same time, we don't take away from that call. This call to enjoyment. So that's next week, week two. And then the third week, I want to try to bring it all together. I think we'll be talking about the, the joys of simplicity in a culture of consumerism. That's where we live, isn't it? How do we enjoy things in simplicity in the midst of a culture that's telling us to get more and more? So that's where we're heading. But as I was processing all these things, I was reading through First Timothy, and I came to First Timothy 4. And this is so helpful. First Timothy 4. We're just going to read the first five verses and we're really going to focus in on verse 4. This is the Apostle Paul and he writes to Timothy, his protege, and says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith, 
by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Look at verse 4 and 5 again. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. We are called to enjoy all of God's good gifts for his glory. We're going to look at verse 4, but let's see the context. Part of the context here is in, it's obviously in verses 1 through 3. Um, and apparently there was a group within the church that Timothy was pastoring that was preaching some sort of sanctification or even salvation based on asceticism, on denying certain physical realities. So in other words, they were devaluing the physical world and the gifts of it, specifically certain foods and marriage. And they were saying that if you could avoid these things, you would be more godly and more spiritual. This could be some early form of what people have called Gnosticism, which is a teaching that, that advocated that we want to free ourselves from the flesh, from anything that's physical. We want to, the way to be truly spiritual is to get rid of all of that. The Sadducees kind of had that idea when they said there is no resurrection, because why would you want to be resurrected into a body? The, the physical is, is, is bad. The spiritual is what is good. So, in other words, in the tension between all that our, our physical senses behold and all that our spiritual senses discern, they would say that the physical world is a hindrance to growing in spirituality. And if we could free ourselves from these things, we would be more like, like God. I think that's what Paul's addressing, and I think that addresses in part some of the tension we're talking about. So Paul's response in verse 4 it is is very strong, and this is so. This is the first big thought we want to think about. Every he says everything created by God is good and should not be rejected. That's Paul's big thought. Everything created by good by God is good and should not be rejected. So in these particular instances, he's talking about marriage and food. He's saying marriage is ordained by God and it's it's given for our good. We know that all throughout Scripture. And with regard to food, the testimony of the New Testament, in fact, from Mark 7 and Acts 10 and 11, is that all foods are clean. We can eat anything. Uh, Paul concludes a discussion about abstaining from food, food by saying that you can eat, you can drink, you can do everything to the glory of God. This is in some sense how things are sanctified. You see that in verse 5, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. In other words, the, the word of God teaches us that these things are good. Marriage is fine. It's good. It's a gift. Food is a gift. And, and all things are clean in Christ. So the word of God sanctifies those things in particular. But not just those things. The word of God in general speaks of the goodness of all that God has created and made. Right from the very beginning, right? Genesis chapter 1. God makes Everything that we see out of the black chaos of nothing, he speaks this world into existence and he says, it's good. Darkness and light, sun and moon and stars, earth and ocean, plants and animals, men and women, they're good. God says that they are all good and the world stands forth as this beautiful reflection of the majesty and the greatness of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. 
Adam and Eve are placed into a paradise called Eden. And in Eden, everything is good. Adam and Eve are invited to enjoy all that God has made. Everything in the garden is given to them for their good and for their joy. There are a million yeses in the Garden of Eden. And one no. Just one no. And that tree is not bad. It's just don't touch it. I think that's God's heart for us. A million yeses. One no. His, his heart is not squelching us, but his heart is to give us good things. And he knows that, that to take the thing he says no to is bad. This is, this is God's heart for us. And the fall in Genesis 3, it bends the world severely, but it doesn't break it completely, I don't think. And the heavens, Psalm 19.1, declare the glory of God. Psalm 104 talks about the good of creation and the joy that it can bring us. God continues to give good gifts to his people. He calls Abraham, and what does he say he's going to take him to? He's going to take him to a good land flowing with milk and honey, a land with physical blessings. That's the blessing he wants to give Abraham. The children of Israel are given so many good gifts, and he grounds the worship of him in physical, tangible things, in tabernacles and, and, and temples. The smells and the tastes and the sights of, of the temple call people to worship God. He gives feasts and he gives festivals to Israel, all of which includes celebrating God through the means of food and wine and, and symbols. And of all of the celebrations and the festivals that, that God gives, only one requires fasting. And that's just for one day. Everything else is about feasting. The Sabbath God gives not to make us miserable, but for our good. I was reading in Deuteronomy 14, and he talks about tithes. Listen to this. This is crazy. You may want to go to Deuteronomy 14 because you won't believe that it says this. But it says when he tells them about tithes, in Deuteronomy 14:22, You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. So the tithe is given to God, but consumed by the giver before God to, to honor him. Then it says, and if the way is too long for you, so you can't bring all of that with you, so that you're not able to carry the tithe, when the Lord your God blesses you, because the place is too far from you, which the Lord uh, your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money. So take whatever you are going to give as a tithe, turn it into money, sell it, make it money, and bind it up in your hand. Go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money there for whatever you desire, oxen, sheep, or wine, or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves. And you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. That's what God wants us to do. Take what I give you, bring it to me, and then eat it, drink it, and rejoice before me. The tithe is to be converted into whatever the giver desires so that he can enjoy it before God. The enjoyment of God's good gifts glorifies him. We go to the middle of the Old Testament and you see Job. And Job seems like this picture of why we shouldn't love the things of this earth because they're all taken from him. Except that in Job 42, God gives it all back and more. The Psalms talk about they extol God for, for all that he has made. Ecclesiastes is a slippery little book, but at least we know it says that you should fear God, eat, drink, 
and be married. That's part of the message of what Ecclesiastes is. And the Song of Solomon is a poetic rejoicing in marital love in general and physical intimacy within marital love in particular. That's what the whole book of Song of Solomon is about. Fast forward to the New Testament and we're given the the clearest picture of enjoyment of the creation of the physical world, that, that this can be redeemed in the fact that Jesus becomes physical. The physical can't be bad if Jesus actually becomes a human being. He becomes a human being to redeem the, the world. God takes on flesh. His first miracle in the book of John is, is not to make all the wine at a wedding feast disappear, but rather it's to turn massive amounts of water into the best wine that people had ever tasted. That's the first miracle he does. He's accused of being a, a drunkard and a glutton. He feeds 5,000 people until they're full. He participates in all the feasts of the Jewish calendar. And then we look to the future and we've been reminded that the world to come is a physical, tangible world where we will have physical, tangible bodies. We will be resurrected. We will feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb. The pictures of the eternal state are physical things. So, has sin stained this world? Yes. And there are cautions that we have to remember. And we will get to those, I promise. But there is goodness in the physical world that God has made. And in our search to be spiritual, in our search to be Christ-like, we don't need to reject the gifts of the world that God has created or feel guilty about enjoying them to his glory. Paul is strong, isn't he? Nothing is to be rejected. All of the things of this earth that bring us joy, they are created by God, they are good, and they are not to be rejected. Now that might just sound like humanistic hedonism, right? Sort of this, you only live once, just live it up while you can, and we'll just sort of throw God in there. Or maybe Thoreau, what does he say? That he wanted to to suck all the morrow out of life. So we'll just be like Thoreau, but add Jesus into it, sort of, somehow. Is that what we're saying? I think this is where Paul is very helpful. And so if, if the first thing that we say is everything created by God is good and should not be rejected, then the second thing I want to say is God's good gifts are to be received with thanksgiving. God's good gifts are to be received with thanksgiving. So verse 4, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if... So this, this is the, the clause. If it is received with thanksgiving, for it's made holy by the word of God. So we saw how the word says these things are good. And prayer. And I think the prayer is the same as the thanksgiving. It's a, it's a giving of thanks to God for all of these things. So the gifts of God are to be received with thanksgiving. And here's how we are different than just your average run-of-the-mill, you only live once, suck the morrow out of life, hedonist, Okay. We're different is because what makes our enjoyment of the physical world, it, it's different because we receive it with thanksgiving, with gratitude to God as the giver of all good gifts. And through that gratitude and thanksgiving, we honor and we glorify God. So the person apart from Christ who rejoices in a tree or in his wife or in thanksgiving or in all of those things, if they rejoice in that, they rejoice in their favorite song or a masterpiece by Monet or a sunrise. If they rejoice in that but don't give thanks to God, they've missed the true joy of what that is there for, of the purpose for it and why God has given it. 
Paul says that the, they worship the creature rather than the creator. There is joy. Acts 14, 17 says there is true joy for people apart from Christ in the things that they get, but it is not ultimate joy and it's not worship. In an article titled, How to Drink Orange Juice to the Glory of God, you can name the author, John Piper says, this. he's talking about 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. He says this, I draw this somber conclusion. It is sin to eat or drink or do anything not for the glory of God. In other words, sin is not just a list of harmful things, killing, stealing, etc. Sin is leaving God out of account in the ordinary affairs of your life. Sin is anything you do that you don't do for the glory of God. But what do unbelievers do for the glory of God? Nothing. Therefore, everything they do is sinful. That is what I mean by saying that apart from saving grace, all we do is morally ruined. That's deep, isn't it? If we don't do it for the glory of God, then we are doing it for selfish reasons and it is sin. But if we are in Christ through saving grace, we are released to rejoice in God's gifts as from God. So we saw in in Deuteronomy that the tithe is to be redeemed for whatever your heart desires and we enjoy it before God and that is worship to him and glorifies him. Here's another great one, Psalm 116 in verse, verses 12 and 13, it asks this question. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? What can I give to God for everything that he's done for me? What's the answer the psalmist gives? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. The repayment of God for all that he has done is for us to rejoice in the salvation that he's given and all the blessings that flow from that. God doesn't want to be paid back. He can't be paid back. And so the way that we, we give thanks to God is by enjoying him as the, the, the one who is the source of our deepest joy and the giver of all the good gifts that we have. That's how we honor God for everything that he's given us. Again, I'm tempted to give cautions, but I don't want to do it yet because I want us to, to think about what he, what Paul is saying. Everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected. God's good gifts are to be received with thanksgiving to the Father of lights from whom every good gift comes down. And what is the greatest gift, of course? It's Jesus. Jesus who comes to this earth as the perfect gift, as a Savior, as a Redeemer. He comes to, to take those of us who were, and maybe you still are someone who cannot do anything for the glory of God because you are not a Christian. You've never been redeemed. You, don't, you haven't seen Christ. He come, Jesus comes to live fully for the glory of God and then to die for our sin of not enjoying God as we should and then to be raised to give us new life. You, you were created to glorify God. We're all created to worship God. And when we don't, when we reject him, we sin against him. And the penalty for our sin is death. But Jesus comes, lives the perfect life, dies for our sin, and offers us salvation so that we can rejoice in him now and then for all eternity. But we also know from Romans 8 that he who spared not his own son, but delivered up for him, for us, him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? 
He has given us himself, and now he blesses us beyond anything we could ever imagine. So in that same um, article, the Piper says this. He says, orange juice was created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe the truth. Therefore, unbelievers cannot use orange juice for the purpose God intended, namely as an occasion for heartfelt gratitude to God from a true heart of faith. But believers can. And this is how they glorify God. They're drinking orange juice. Your drinking orange juice is sanctified by means of the word of God in prayer. The word of God teaches us that the juice and even our strength to drink it is a free gift of God. The prayer is our humble response of thanks from the heart. Believing this truth in the word and offering thanks in prayer is one way we drink orange juice to the glory of God. And we can do all things in that way with thanksgiving to God for all of the many blessings that he has given us. The leaders of the Reformation back in the 16th century in the church, they broke away from the, the Catholic Church and from its, its legalism and, and this law way of salvation. And they were filled with joy at the freedom of the gospel of salvation by grace through faith. Martin Luther was bogged down with guilt and despair because he knew how sinful he was. And all these strictures of religion, they drove him to the point of, of despair. But when he saw the gospel, he was, he was freed. So much so that he, a committed monk, married a nun. She wasn't a nun anymore at that point. He saw so much so that he was free to do these things. He got rid of all these, these strictures and he rejoiced in the good gift of a wife. One scholar says this, Little did the 16th century world realize the tremendous significance, both religious and social, of this simple and reverent ceremony in the backwoods of rural Germany. Luther's marriage remains to this day the central evangelical symbol of the Reformation's liberation and transformation of the Christian daily life. I went beyond marriage, though. Another guy says this, Luther's faith was simple enough to trust that after a, after a conscientious day's labor, a Christian father could come home and eat his sausage, remember he's German, could eat his sausage, drink his beer, remember he's German, play his flute, sing with his children, and make love to his wife, all to the glory of God. I love that. And I think that that's what God has called us to do. If we are freed from sin in the gospel and we see God's good gifts and we can rejoice in them as from him. I want to get into these cautions, but let's not do it yet. We can enjoy them to him. That There's a beauty to that that honors him, that gives him glory, even in these things that we do. I think particularly there's a there's a. This idea of enjoying, enjoying God's good gifts for his glory is so helpful in times of despair and times of depression. Now, some of us are just, and I say us, we're just a little bit melancholy. Just have a little bit tinged towards that side, okay? And all of us have gone through times where we, we don't know why, but we're just sort of, if depressed is the word you want to use, if melancholy is the word you want to use, just whatever fits you. And, and in that moment, there is a need to turn to God's word, to the truth of the gospel, and to prayer. I am not saying don't do that. That's the first place we run to. Thank God for the truth of the gospel. But we also need sometimes to just get out of our own heads, you know? We need to do something. You need to 
work hard at your, at your job, or maybe you just need to plant a garden or go ride your bike or something. We need to enjoy what God's given. We need to, to meet with other people and to, to laugh and to weep and to pray. When I don't want to go to small group, that's when I need to go to small group. Because I don't want to be around anyone because I just don't feel like it. Because I just want to get in my own brain. I need to get out of that and, and, and talk to others. The natural world that God has created for us is a wonderful remedy to a melancholy spirit. When we are overwhelmed by life, creation reveals to us the glory of God. And it fills all of our senses spiritual and physical alike, in a way that if we just hole up in our house with with books and journals, we'll never get there. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, who um, was a great preacher, but said he often struggled with inexplicable depression. He said this in a sermon to aspiring pastors, but it fits first of all. He says this, this is a little bit long quote, Let a man be naturally as blithe, as happy as a bird. He will hardly be able to bear up year after year against such a suicidal process. He will make his study a prison and his books the warders of a jail, while nature lies outside his window calling him to health and beckoning him to joy. He who forgets the humming of the bees among the heather, the cooing of the wood pigeons in the forest, the songs of birds in the woods, the rippling of rills among the rushes, and the sighing of the wind among the pines needs not wonder if his heart forgets to sing and his soul grows heavy. A day's breathing fresh air upon the hills or a few hours ramble in the beechwoods. Calm would sweep the cobwebs out of the brain of scores of our toiling ministers who are now but half alive. A mouthful of sea air or a stiff walk in the wind's face would not give grace to the soul, but it would yield oxygen to the body, which is next best. Heaviest the, the heart is heaviest the heart is in a heavy air. Every wind that rises blows away despair. The ferns and the rabbits, the streams and the trouts, the fir trees and the squirrels, the primroses and the violets, the farmyard, the new mown hay, and the fragrant hops. These are the best medicine for hypochondriacs, the surest tonics for the declining, the best refreshments for the weary. Man, I love that. We need that, don't we? got to get out and see how great God is and enjoy what he's given us and not feel the guilt that so often plagues us. Everything is given by God and nothing is to be rejected. We can enjoy all of God's good gifts to his glory if we receive them with thanksgiving. We give thanks to him. We're not worshiping the thing. We're worshiping the God who has given it. So what's the application this week, huh? Oh, it's, it's wonderful, isn't it? Think about the application of this thought. This week, we, we need to get out. We need to sanctify all of God God's good gifts to us. We need to see in his world all the good things that he has blessed us with. We need to thank him for everything, from the, the breath in our lungs to a breathtaking sunset. We need to see that that is from God. So take a walk. <laughs> read a book. You know what? Read a novel, even. You can do that. Play a game with your children. Eat food, good, bad, whatever. Drink some coffee, and if you can get a hold of a donut and that's okay with you, do that too. You should laugh with friends. Watch a movie. There's an application for you. Listen to some music. Work hard. Work hard at your job to the glory of God. Rake your leaves. Bring, it, bring chaos 
bring order to the chaos of your kitchen. I'm going to have to do that this afternoon, and I've got to find a way to do that to the glory of God. God has, has done all these things. Uh, kiss your spouse like a really good one. You know what I mean? Play basketball. Exercise. Create something. Paint something. Write a poem. I, I don't know. Cook something. Bake something delicious and then bring it to my house and we'll enjoy it together. I, I mean, we all have different things that we love to do. Marlene, bake a cake, you know. Uh, I was thinking... Uh, Ramel and, and Nate, you guys should just lift some weights to the glory of God. That shouldn't leave Sarah out. She can do that too, right? And Mark can play his guitar to the glory of God. Nick, you can garden and, and farm to God's glory, right? I, I love that. He does it so well. Uh, I mean, there's so many things that we can, that we can do for God's glory. You know, Tug and John go running all the time through the woods to the glory of God, right? We can do all of this in a way that says God is the giver of all of these things and I can rejoice in Him and see that, that He is the greatest and that it points us to Christ. It points us to, yes, there is something greater. We're going to think about that, but there is joy even in and of itself. You can do it all for the glory of God, freed by God's Word, led by His Spirit, overwhelmed with, with thanksgiving. And we delight when, when we delight in the good gifts that God has given us, we honor him. We glorify him as the giver. We say, God, you and all that you have made are good. You are the satisfaction of my soul. So go. And, and, and everything that you see, we'll have the caveats next week, everything has been given by God. Don't refuse anything if you can receive it with thanksgiving and honor God with it.